Christians are singing people, and Christmas is a singing time, and it's a, it's a musical time. Most of us enjoyed a house full of brass music on Friday night here, and I happen to notice by watching the internet that choirs are singing all over our area, some very, very beautiful singing at Christmas time. Chris, Christians are singing people, and Christmas is a singing musical time. And while we're on the subject, Craig, thank you, and thank you for your beautiful music today. Thank you for the team that led us, and thank you for your beautiful voices. You make Christmas like nowhere else can you really hear that. Spirit-filled Christian people singing from their heart. Christians are singing people. Christmas is a singing time. When I went off to Moody Bible Institute, I had sung a lot, so I sort of thought of myself as a singer. I was super shocked to realize every kid at Moody was better singer than me. Every single one of them. Amazing. I was just so shocked to sit down. We did a thing called Oratorio Chorus, which I wasn't terribly familiar with. But what it is, Oratorio is generally a Bible story told in song, kind of like Bible opera, sort of, only better. And, and they did Messiah, Handel's Messiah. And they would practice in Tory Gray Auditorium, hundreds of young people. Everybody in the music program, I think, was kind of required to do that at the time. And they handed us a score, which was a big book of music. And I sat down with that and could only kind of read it and sat next to upperclassmen who just took off singing these amazing choruses that just... It was, and I, I remember as an 18-year-old sitting in Tory Gray and having them sing and just not being able to sing, first of all, just because I was so shocked. Was so, so, uh, the learning curve was so steep that I had to learn the songs that I didn't know, but because I was so moved by these beautiful songs about Jesus. Christmas is a music time, and Christians are singing people. Aren't you glad that's true? I am so glad that's true. And, and I, I know I mentioned it already, but I loved hearing you all sing today. It's such a beautiful job. I love seeing our young people throughout the year. They'll be singing and they'll be dancing throughout the day. And in, today in our area, because Christmas is a music time. And the story that we are privileged to tell today is the story of a song. It's the second story of a song in the book of Luke. And today we compare with our past messages and this, we compare two beautiful songs. When I was there at, at Moody, they, they, they practiced in Tory Gray over and over again on Monday nights. I'd never seen it done before, so I didn't know how it was going to work. And then on the Sunday that we were going to present this oratorio, which is essentially, it's the life of Christ in song, they would put together the choruses, which we were working on, and arias, which are solos, and then they also would bring in a symphony. And I might not be using the right words, but it was like amazing to hear that all together. As I remember as a young man standing in the middle and where Tory Gray is, there's a balcony that's kind of up high, so it's on the, the, the platform, if you will, and the balcony is kind of up there. And I was up with a group of hundreds of kids in the balcony, or the choir loft, and, and looking down on the, the row of soloists that would sing the arias there, 
And then we were, of course, obviously the chorus, and then the orchestra. And, you know, if, you're, if you know Messiah, if you don't, you should go listen to it this afternoon. It starts out with this gorgeous um, uh, overture. Um, and I wasn't prepared for how emotional and how amazing that was going to be to watch the bows of the... Of the uh, I feel a little uh, like I'm among real musicians today, and I'm saying the words wrong, but to look at that and to watch those move together and to hear that sound burst out, literally like, wow, I couldn't believe how beautiful it was. The subject is so beautiful. The way it's done was so beautiful. And uh, it's the way it is when people meet the Lord Jesus. They, he puts a song in our hearts, and this was true with Precious Mary. She had a song that we commonly know as the Magnificat that's in this chapter, Luke 1. And then there was Zachariah, who was told his wife was going to have a baby, and he believed, but not quite enough. And so the Lord decided he wouldn't talk until the baby was born. And in a gracious chastisement, he was silent. And you know, as you heard the newlyweds here read our text today, you know that when Zachariah, when the baby, his baby John was born, to he and Elizabeth, then he burst into song. The first words he said as soon as he was able to speak were a, was a benediction, was a blessing. And it's often called Benedictus for that reason. So what we have in this amazing uh, story is a couple of parts. So you probably saw that. Mary, who I apologize for overlooking you last week, Mary, you were here with your Mary name and I overlooked you. Uh, William and Mary... Uh, Mary read the narrative part, the story part, and William read the Zechariah part. And that's, the, that's how we should see this text today. Two chunks, kind of a narrative. This is what happened. And then this is the song that Zechariah sang. And goodness, is it rich and beautiful. So you have the story there in part one. So this passage, I think, is kind of like the spiritual equivalent of the Canadian Rockies. You ever been there, you just drive and you drive and you drive and you think, I'm never going to exhaust the beauty of these mountains. And that's just the way these songs are. They're just so full of beautiful things that we cannot hope to exhaust their beauty or their truth. But we do want to be thorough and we want to be reverent and we want to be careful because this material is so spiritually rich. Now, in the past in our series, we're still in Luke 1. We've been in Luke 1. And we'll go, we'll go to Luke 2, of course, obviously next week with the birth narrative of Jesus. But in Luke 1, what we've seen, if you think about it, is the com comparisons and contrast. You're, you're really, it's really comparing and contrasting or comparing Mary's response to what the, the angel told her and, and Zachariah and Elizabeth, in particular Zachariah's response to what the same angel told him. And both of them burst into song eventually. He gets, Zachariah gets to his. And the songs can be compared. And this stimulated my sanctified imagination again. Because remember last week, what was the story was the, the, the event that we were talking about, the story that we were telling, that Luke tells us is that Elizabeth and Mary had a meeting, that Mary came to visit Elizabeth. 
And she came to Elizabeth and Zachariah's house. And my sanctified imagination wants to know where was Zachariah? Maybe he wasn't there and it was just the girls that were talking. And I wonder, and we don't know, the scriptures don't say so, but I wonder if he wasn't present in the room. What if he had been present in the room when the baby leaps in Elizabeth's womb when John the Baptist recognizes Jesus? And then Elizabeth says to Mary, blessed are you and blessed is the fruit of your womb because you believe right away. <laughs> and I imagine if Zachariah's in the room, he looks up from his iPad for a minute and he wipes a tear out of the corner of his eye like, oh, I wish I had believed everything right away. But then that's just my imagination. It doesn't say that in the Bible. Especially the iPad part is definitely not in there because we know he read a regular newspaper. Anyway, if Zachariah was there... But what we do have in the text that we know is true is that there is this literary comparison between the two. And both of them were godly people. And both of them were devout people. And both of them were righteous people. But God was working on Zechariah a little bit. We're going to see that. And there's probably a key part of the narrative here. But the way it starts is interesting because a little rumor gets going in the hills. It's not untrue. But the, the, by the way, this is an interesting thing for you to no, and that is when it talks about the Judean hill country, it's generally talking about the area that's south and I think I said last, year, last week I, I said incorrectly east, it's not west. It's south and west of Jerusalem is a rolling countryside and then the Judean wilderness would be south and east towards the Dead Sea and that's stark and a little scary. So that when people say the Judean wilderness or Jesus went off into the wilderness of Judea, that's what they're talking about. But when they say one of the mountains, it's often in Galilee, which is north. But then when they say the Judean hills, it's a, currently a suburb of Jerusalem. And if you were to go there today, you would see that church groups have built churches to commemorate all these places. And this would be in a hilly suburb of Jerusalem today, if that's the accurate place of, of, of uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah's house at the time. We do know that the scriptures say that all their neighbors in the hill country of Judea were talking about what happened. And, and it's, it's beautiful. The time for Elizabeth came to give birth, verse 57, she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And take out your little mental highlighter right now and mark the word mercy right there. Because what we're going to see, and it's a key theme in the text, is that the people could see that God had shown mercy to Elizabeth and to Zechariah. And then a little bit later on, you're going to hear Zechariah reference the mercy that God showed to Abraham and to his people. And then a little bit later on, you're going to see in what I call the sweet spot of the passage that Zechariah basically says, and this tender mercy, this mercy from the very innermost place of God is offered to everyone through Jesus Christ. It's the sweet spot of the text. It's so beautiful. There's a, there's a word and there's wonder and there's kind of a holy gossip in the hill country. That's why verse 58 says, her neighbor's relatives heard that the Lord had shown mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. They had the good sense to rejoice with her. And, and a little bit later, you'll notice it says, um, and fear, this is verse 65, and fear came upon all their neighbors. There they are again, the, the people that we tend to overlook in the story are the neighbors around. 
who are wondering at what's happening and rejoicing at what's happening and gossiping in a kind of a good way. They're burbling over about what happened. And all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea. I don't know, that hits a warm spot. I mean, think about that. People in those villages in the hills were talking about, what is this? And all who heard him laid them up in their hearts. Verses 66, saying, what then shall this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And that's a common phrase you hear in the Bible. Who is this man? What is happening here? It's a holy wonder. It's one of the things that carol writers have noticed. It's in Mary and others that this time of the, that we commemorate the incarnation of Christ should stir up wonder in us. It should stir wonder in our hearts. It should, it should cause us to have a desire to drill down and to learn more. So why is this story so prominently here? And why did God mute Zechariah? We know that he muted him, he said, because he, he didn't initially believe. But why did he mute him? Because he didn't initially believe. What was God doing? And you have to understand that as God was still, although this was a devout, godly, righteous man that God was using and was going to use, he was still working on him. He was still growing him. He was still teaching him. He wasn't a young man, but he was still learning. He was learning more deeply to trust God and to obey God and then to express faith. And that's, that's clearly what God was doing when God chastised Zechariah with silence. And Matt, so then why is the story so prominently featured here, do you think? Why have God's people paused by the fire of Luke's story and warmed their hands so often? Because he's still working on us too. Because we have things to learn. And because sometimes our faith is weak. And we need to believe. And we need to obey. And we need to trust Him. And it's not going to be easy. It's for you and I. So I'm really glad you're here. So you have that first beautiful part there. The story about the birth of John. And about the naming of John. And about the... Zachariah getting his voice back, his voice and probably his hearing too. Then you have the second chunk. You have the story in part two is a prophetic song of Zechariah. You have the birth and the naming of John, verses 57 and six to 66. Then you have Zechariah's prophetic song. Um, he's speaking forth and he's foretelling future things. Uh, it's, it's, it's beautiful, it's rich. Uh, let's read it again. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited. Notice the verbs here are rich. He's visited. He redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation. It's symbol of power. Raised up a horn of deliverance, of, of, of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he's pointing back to promises to Israel. He spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that he should be saved from our enemies. Sorry, that we should be saved from our enemies 
and from the hand of all who hate us, and here it comes again now, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. He's saying in his song, the birth of, he's not, he's not really focusing on himself. He's not really focusing on his wife. He's not really even focusing on his son. He's focusing on what the birth of his son means in terms of the promises that are, the covenants that are made to God's people in the Old Testament that'll be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so in the first part of Zechariah's song, you can kind of divide it in half. In the first part of Zechariah's song, he's speaking about Jesus, the covenant promises to Israel. He's really speaking about Jesus to God. But then he does something very beautiful, and it's every grandpa's instinct. It's every devout dad's instinct. What is your instinct when God when you know that your wife or your daughter has given birth and you know that they made it through that terrible danger of giving birth and they're okay and a baby is in the world and the baby is okay, the instinct is to take that baby up and know that you've witnessed the closest thing to a miracle that you can have without an actual miracle and then to bless the baby and to pray. And Zechariah prays, prayed to God and blessed God. And now he's addressing his prayer to his baby, to the baby. And, and, and to his baby. And, and, and that's um, in verse uh, 40, uh, sorry, 73, it says, The oath he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And then in verse 76, he says, then you, child, he's talking to the baby, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go prepare the Lord, before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. It's, an, it's, it, it's, it's a, one way to say this would be, in Zechariah's prayer, he prays to God about Jesus, and then he speaks to John about John talking about Jesus. He just can't stop talking about Jesus. And then again, you have the theme at services again in verse 78 in a, in a very powerful way. Because of the tender mercy of our God, because of the mercy that comes from deep within God, is the tender mercy of our God. And then this is where I just, what I do, sorry to interrupt myself, I know that's irritating quality I have. I listen to the text every morning when I walk. And so I put on my little dwell Bible app and then I listen and then I listen and then I listen in a different translation and I walk and I listen and, and the sun's coming up one morning and it's just a beautiful, it's just been a beautiful week. And the sun's coming up and then I, I hear a voice saying, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise will visit us from on high, and will give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. I think I found my sweet spot right there. What happens when God, from the deepest part of him, offers mercy to people? Then it's like the light dawns. It's like the sun comes up. He gives his mercy and the sun comes out. 
and he guides us in a way of peace. How sweet is that? That, that might make a person burst into song. I did not. So there you have a little interesting, just a little sweeping analysis of that. What's the reason for the story? I want to suggest five things today that I noticed that are just rich. I've seen them as I studied this week. They're just powerful insights for people who want to live under God's mercy. You can live under the mercy of God, in the mercy of God, under the mercy of God, forgiven of your sins, pursuing righteousness and holiness, a child of God, redeemed is the word that's used in this text, which you know is, the, is, the, is an evocative picture of, of being purchased out of slavery by the ransom price of the blood of Jesus, is what we know from Scripture. Can I show you these five things, though, that are interesting? They're just powerful insights for living under mercy. It's for Mary, it was for the fathers, it's for everyone, right? First insight is this, God expects this of us. God expects this. He, it is true to say he demands this of us. I demand you to live under mercy. I demand you to live under mercy, walk in the light, and, and, and have my peace. This is what he was te- teaching us through Mary's example. He said, this is what's gonna do, what I'm going to do. And Mary says, then, then I'm all for it. Yes, I, I believe your promises and I will obey. And then he says to Zechariah, here's what I want you to do. And Zechariah says, are you sure? And he says, okay, you're going to be quiet for a while, but then you're going to believe and obey. And he teaches him. So it's expected of us. It's demanded of us. It's a, it, it, uh, Jesus has come so that we can live under the mercy, walk in the light, experience the peace of God, verses 77 and 78, and have a song, burst into this song, if you will, and see God at work around us. God expects us to believe what he says and live in habitual obedience. He expects us to believe what he says and live in habitual obedience. That's what he's saying through Mary. That's what he's saying, I think, in comparison between how Mary's response and how her response was commended by Elizabeth and Zachariah's little, you know, slow start. And yet, of course, he lands on his feet and does as God instructed him to do. And it's a mercy that the Lord puts that little story in there for those of us who are like slow starters too, And perhaps we need some help, some correction, some rebuke, some chastisement, some silence, or some confusion. It's it's what we're expected to do. And and if we're expected, it means we can walk in the light and we can live at peace with God. Second thing is I, I notice is when you think about who this baby is, don't assume that a blessed life is an easy life. Don't assume a blessed life is an easy life. Here is Zechariah praying this blessing on his son who's not really going to live into old age. And when he dies, he's going to die a violent and unjust death. But he's going to fulfill his purpose on earth. He's going to be called great. He's going to be powerfully used of God but he's going to die young in a violent way, a way that I think whenever I hear this story just kind of grates against my heart. How could such an evil person do such a thing to such a good man in such a vile way? Don't assume, sometimes when we think, well, God's going to bless me, meaning I get to have everything I want and I have unbroken good health 
and the perfect, happy, fulfilling marriage and dutiful little children that go off and make me proud and my team always wins the national championship. (laughs) Not according to the Bible. Don't assume you'll have an easy life. And then third insight here is let God's gentle chastisement do its work in your life. And know the difference between punishment and chastisement. God doesn't punish his children. When you're a child of God, you are delivered forever from the wrath of God. God will never pour out his wrath upon you. That kind of judgment will never be for a believer. If, If there's a reference to judgment in Scripture, it's different than that. And we could go into that another time, but... But there is a thing that the scriptures talk about, and probably we should look here. We've got a time to do this. Look in Hebrews 12. If you wish, you could just listen carefully as I read this. Listen to, this is how the writer of Hebrews describes the work that God does in us when we're slow learners. And, and it's, a, it's a famous passage about chastisement, not punishment, but discipline, about a, the nurture of a, real, of a father that you would have high respect for because he would love you and serve you, but he would also demand of you things. This is um, from Hebrews 12, verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation, this is from Proverbs, that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline I'm calling it chastisement here. The discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Does that sound fun? No, it doesn't sound fun. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For, uh, it's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. What son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? And if you have, are left without discipline in which all have participated. You are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our own good, that we may share in his holiness. How hopeful is that? I want to share in your holiness, but I never want to be disciplined. Yeah. Not how it works if you're really a child of God. Zechariah, who's commended in Scripture, and who is a righteous man, and he's conscientiously walking with the Lord, and so is his wife. God is still working on him. So it shouldn't discourage you. It shouldn't surprise you if you find out that God loves you so much, and he treasures you so much, he's still working on you too. But it won't be that much fun. But it will produce holiness. You want that. Listen to verse 11. Kind of humorous. Kind of humorous. In the mo- in the, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> but later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. He's saying, as soon as you get your voice back, praise me. Make straight paths for your feet so that the lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. He's saying, I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm not trying to destroy you. I'm not, I'm not, trying, I, I'm not trying to punish you. I'm crafting it into who I want you to be. 
And so may all of God's people who sang his praise today also have very humble, tender hearts, all of us, that realize that God is so just, he could take us out by lightning and it would not be unjust for him to do that. But instead, he works patiently with his children and sometimes rebuking them and sometimes teaching them and sometimes disciplining them. And so you might have a season coming in which something's happening you really don't like, but you want to look at it as a coming through the fingers of God's providence. Luther, I think it was, famously said, there's a difference between filial fear and servile fear. There's family fear of God. You respect your father because he disciplines you and he rewards you and he loves you. You don't just fear that he wants to punish you. So Christian, I want to tell you, God is not going to punish you. That's why I often say if something bad is happening to you, you're a believer, God is doing something good. Sometimes it's hard to believe. This is why, those are the times when we have to cling to that. I mean, recently, our church has been touched by great tragedy. Death of a young mother. And we have to remind ourselves that a blessed life is not necessarily an easy life. But God has not abandoned us. And God has not abandoned his family. God's special attention, his special love is available for them and for you. So don't assume a blessed life is an easy life and let God's gentle chastisement do its work in your life. All things that happen that are difficult are not necessarily chastisement. Persons have to be discerning. Sometimes God does something that isn't particularly, that we don't receive as particularly good, and it's not chastisement. It is for God's glory. The man born blind was like that. He wasn't chastised. He hadn't done something wrong. And then the fourth thing that I notice here is that we would be neglecting the text to overlook it because it's a theme that keeps beautifully bursting forth. And that is all the parties are filled with the Holy Spirit. It's going to be a theme that we're going to enjoy as we go through Luke and Acts. Did I tell you we're going to go through Acts too? Um, Because Luke is always pointing out, and then he was filled, then she was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then he was filled with, now the baby was filled with the Holy, will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Then Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. The baby leaps from the womb, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And Mary's filled with the Holy Spirit. She couldn't say what she said. And specifically, Zachariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you know what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Do you know how to be filled with the Holy Spirit? That'd be something to study. We won't take a lot of time today, but I would just say, do you know the difference between the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the fullness of the Holy Spirit? So the scriptures teach that, somebody said it this way, I think in my childhood I remember being taught, one baptism, many fillings. I think that's accurate. When we're saved, we're baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. An example of that, the teaching on that would be in Ephesians chapter 1, Everyone who is saved has the Holy Spirit. Baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ, we have the indwelling Spirit. So the Spirit indwells every believer according to the promise of God. 
and always will. It's the seal of the Spirit. The seal, the indwelling Spirit is the seal until the redemption of the purchased possession. It's a guarantee. Amazing, wonderful guarantee. If you are saved, you have the Holy Spirit. You're baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ. But you'll notice that throughout the Scripture, it talks about the fullness of the Holy Spirit as if a person could be filled or not filled with the Holy Spirit, even if they have, if they have the Holy Spirit. But yet sometimes they're, some would say, a way to say it would be, sometimes they're controlled by the Spirit, but sometimes they grieve or quench or resist the Spirit. And though they have the Spirit, they're not, be, they're not really under the control of the Holy Spirit or filled with the Holy Spirit. They might be filled with wrath, or it might be filled with lust, or filled with greed, or filled with fear. And what this text is illustrating to us is that when God is doing his wonderful things that he's doing, he uses common people, and he fills them with his spirit. And they yield in obedience to what he's told them to do. And their, and their impulse comes from the Spirit, and the power comes from the Spirit. And when a person continually walks in the impulses of the Spirit or the truth of the Word of God and obeys them in the power of the Holy Spirit, using the gifts the Holy Spirit's given them, it yields the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That'd be a rich study right there. And so learn to learn and go to school on what does it mean to walk in the Spirit and to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. That's a insight from this. And the final one that I noticed, and there's so many more, you've seen probably things I haven't seen here, but walk in the fear and the wonder of the Lord. You notice it's commended by Luke, the narrator here. It's, it's, it's as if we pull up to Luke's fire of this narrative, and, we, and Luke says, when this happened, everybody was talking about it, and they were filled with wonder. The fear of God it's almost like bookends in the passage. It, look, at, look at the end. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. He was in the wilderness until the day his public appearance to Israel. And that's the, that's the end of this chunk of Luke's narrative, but it echoes back to the passage in 66 where it says, and all who heard that laid them on their hearts, and they said, what child would this be? The hand of the Lord is in them. And Christmas is a wonderful time. For confidence and certainties. That's what this whole book is about, to be confident, to be certain. It's also a wonderful time for wonders. This I know, because the word has said it. This I, I, I love to think about. This I know, thus saith the Lord. This is what God said. This is what he said to do. I'll obey his promises. I'll go where he said to go. I'll say what he says to say. I'll, I'll do what he wants me to do. This is a mystery to me. I'll trust him. And often our worship is fueled by this wonder. What is God doing? We don't know. It hasn't happened yet. But we do know that it's wonderful. So it leaves us with a question I pose to you. And will you trust and obey? Remember the old song, trust and obey? Will you trust him? Will you obey him? Will you say, okay, you're young, you're a teen, and you have to decide how you're going to live your life now. Your mom believes this, and your dad believes that, and your Sunday school teacher believes this, and you're supposed to believe that, but you have an internet connection, and you realize there are other people with other ideas, and they're everywhere. Most people around here aren't in church today. They don't believe what we believe. You're going to have to decide what you believe. What will you believe is true, and, will you, and build your life on it, 
Can I say this from this text to you, pastor's heart, lover, loving older person's heart to you that are younger, and that is this. You want to live with a song in your heart. You want to live with a song in your heart. And when you want to live with a sense of purpose, you must follow the one who created you. Trust his promises and obey them. Live in spirit-filled obedience to his promises. Believe him and trust him. Saved by grace and walking in faith. Some of you are older and you're finding that in your old, older age, can I say it gently? In your older age, there are challenges that you didn't have when you were younger. There are questions that are coming up that you weren't thinking about when you were young. And I would say very lovingly and respectfully to you, will you still trust him all the way to the end? Will you leave a strong testimony of confidence in God? Maybe it wouldn't be bad for us to be quiet for a while. And then when we have our voice again, to give him immediate praise. It's Christmas week. It's a beautiful week for us. May there be worship, and may there be wonder, and may there be praise in your heart and in your neighborhood too. And I think may there be a great faith stirred in your heart that what, about what God can do, even with like just a handful of faithful people who are trusting his word and who are obeying him, and they're walking in mercy, and they're living under the mercy, and they're walking in light, and they're enjoying his peace. I would, I, we sincerely want you to leave with a blessing. And this whole message has been about Zachariah's blessing. We want you to leave with a blessing. So what we do here at Bethel is we have men who have met already this week to pray for you, publicly bless you, and we mean it. We really mean that. We want you to be blessed. We want your marriage to be blessed. We want your family to be blessed. We want this time, this time of Christmas, to be a time of deeper and sweeter devotion to Christ. And if you don't know the Lord, and you're not confident that your sins are forgiven, and you're a child of God, you shouldn't leave the room until you talk with someone and they can explain that to you exactly how to cross over into God's family. And what, what, we, what we do here, our little tradition is to have prayer partners in the front. So if you want to come and pray with somebody, they'll pray with you and refer you to counsel if you need that. And our also little tradition is that you would stand as the evidence that you would like to receive a blessing. And uh, so that would be like, stand up, because I know you want a blessing, right? Go ahead, do that. Yeah. And, and then Dennis Conan is going to come and send you on your way with a blessing. And uh, he's going to do that.